0: Let's move to Romans. That's a nice segue in a sense. Sorry for just being utterly baffled. Romans may or may not help. We'll, uh, We'll we'll see. Romans, I think it's fair to say, one of the most significant books in the Bible. Partly for its content, it's one of the clearest, most sustained outlines of the Gospel. Also, I think when you get your head around Romans, it does help draw together quite a lot of pieces of the wider Bible story, which is helpful. It's also really significant because of the influence that it's had. You might be aware of names throughout church history, like Augustine or Luther or Wesley or Karl Barth in the last century. People who were hugely impacted by the book of Romans, and of course, many, many of us average Joe Christians as well have been hugely and wonderfully impacted by the book as well. It's kind of a significance through its influence is huge. It's also, let's be honest, a complex book. Largely speaking, it is one thread of thought, or one train of thought, one kind of line of argument from beginning to end, and that can be therefore quite kind of tricky to follow. And so it's worth kind of wrestling with taking time to try and trace that and understand that. Just a few little bits of background. We know the author is Paul, he says it is in the letter, no one's ever particularly questioned or doubted that, and he seems to be writing to a scribe as he often did. And most scholars agree it's probably written from Corinth for various reasons we know from the letter kind of where in Paul's different journeys he is at this point in terms of where he's going to go next, what he's going to do, he's about to head to Jerusalem. He was in Greece before that, it's likely he stayed in Corinth. The lady who seems to carry the letter, Phoebe, was from a place uh, just next to Corinth. There's a guy called Gaius mentioned um, in the church who may be the Gaius baptized in Corinth. At a, really, a really cool one, there's a guy called Erastus mentioned as being where Paul is. And we do actually have an inscription from Corinth mentioning an Erastus from about the same time period, so that could be the same guy. So Paul seems to be in Greece in comments writing this letter, which places it probably somewhere around 57 AD. So we're a couple of decades after the death of Jesus. We are six to ten years before Paul's death, probably. And it's written to Christians in Rome at a church we don't know a lot about, we don't know how the church in Rome started. It's quite possible that on the day of Pentecost, when there were Jews from all over the Roman world in Jerusalem, and when Peter and the others preached the gospel and the Holy Spirit came, it's quite possible. There were people there who came to faith, went back to the Rome, and that the church started at that point. And it seems to be that in Rome there were multiple house churches, multiple small gatherings <coughs> of Christians, and that the makeup of the church was really quite mixed with people both of Jewish background and also of Gentile background. And the purpose and situation is always worth thinking about and very helpful to consider when we come to one of the letters of Paul very often the two are linked the purpose is linked to the situation which kind of makes sense and trying to grasp a bit of what was going on and why Paul was writing can just give some helpful parameters to help our understanding of and interpretation of the letter and that is still very true of Romans Romans is often viewed as a less situational letter as not being about a particular time and place and being a much more general exposition of Christian thought but actually when we look at it carefully it seems to be very situational Paul knows what's going on in Rome and knows what's going on with him and has very specific reasons for writing. And that actually very much shapes what he writes, as we'll see when we go through the letter. So we're going to pause and give you five minutes or so on the tables to look at some of the things the letter itself says and what that can tell us both about Paul and about the Romans. The Paul and his situation. What he's up to, and then think about well, what purpose, therefore, might he have in writing this letter? How might that link to his situation? And then think about the Romans and their situation, and again, what purposes might that give Paul? Um, shall we say, if you're this side of the room, do you want to start at the start of the list of references if you're on this side of the room if you start at the end to so start with chapter 15 and 14 just so we kind of cut them all across us and let's have five or so minutes to look up some of those and work out what's going on with paul and what's going on with the romans let me quickly show you a few of my own reflections and exercise. I haven't kept time very well, so what we're going to try and do is just zip through these couple of next sections, then have coffee, then give us a final hour to actually work through the letter. That's my aim, just so you know. And therefore, because of time, apologies, I'm not going to ask what you found. I'm going to quickly zip through what I think might be there. Paul, it seems, hasn't visited the church in Rome. He didn't plant the church, hasn't visited it. Hasn't been there at all, though he seems to know a load of people, so chapter 16. But his desire is that he can go there, that they can mutually encourage him. And also you might have spotted he's on his way somewhere. He's on his way to Spain. And so he wants them to help him. He, uh, the language he uses he wants them to help them, which basically probably means give him money, to uh, help him to get further west, to get across to Spain to preach the gospel well. And so given Paul hasn't been there, And he wants to come and visit and he wants them to help him. Part of what's going on, really, is just Paul is introducing himself. And probably the reason this letter gives us such a wonderful exposition of the Christian gospel is Paul is kind of presenting, you don't necessarily know me and I haven't yet preached the gospel to you, but here's what I preach. He's slightly kind of showing his... um uh, his credentials uh, ahead of his coming so in part that's what's going on Paul is introducing himself introducing the gospel that he preaches in the desire that he can come that they'll help him in his mission and the Roman situation one particular thing that stands out in those verses I gave you might have noticed is this thing that there are both Jewish Christians out. Uh, Christians with a Jewish background and Christians with a Gentile background and there seem to be potential divisions in the church if you were looking at chapters 14 and 15 that particularly becomes a prominent thing so somehow Paul seems to know there is a a mixture of uh, Jewish and Gentile Christians in this congregation and they seem to be quite divided over some matters and so it seems that one of the things that Paul is doing in this letter is to show how the gospel unites and time and time again we'll see little ways that Paul is putting in there that actually whatever divisions they might be experiencing the gospel can bring unity among them and particularly in the later chapters was that unity is a very big theme that paul is wanting to stress and so even though romans is a bit different from other letters paul writes in the sense that he's not been to this church doesn't know them as well it's still situational it's still for a purpose into a time and place and that's quite helpful um, just to be able to have in mind as we read the letter And let's briefly talk about overall theme, because another thing that helps us give us some parameters to read a a letter well is to think about the overall theme. And there are actually lots of different suggestions have been made about this over the years. Interestingly, scholars have kind of worked through in time periods of thinking different sections of the letter are the theme. So the reformers um, often thought that chapters one to four were absolutely central, that justification by faith is the theme. And the next movement in the early 20th century particularly said that chapters 5 to 8 are the central theme. The idea of being united to Christ, hidden in Christ, is central. After that, came a bit of a focus on chapters 9 to 11. And actually, the place of Gentiles within salvation history was the particular theme. And more recently, some scholars have gone, no, it's the final chapters. It's 12 to 16, which are the theme and about the unity of um, Jewish and Gentile believers. But actually, I think, uh, particularly influenced by a guy called Douglas Moo, whose commentary is very good on Romans, I think the best option for overall theme for this letter actually is the Gospel. That seems to be the theme in place to us by the letter the gospel is incredibly prominent in the opening of the letter and also the closing of the letter it kind of bookmarks it which is an indication potentially of theme and chapter uh, verse 16 of chapter 1 seems to be kind of the statement from which everything else in romans flows all of romans seems to be an outworking of unpacking of explanation of this statement which is a statement about the gospel Paul not being ashamed of the gospel because the power of God for salvation. It seems to me that is what Romans is about and what Romans is unpacking. And I think every section of Romans, the four sections, can be thought of in terms of the gospel quite well. So gospel seems to be a primary theme, but also there are a few notable sub-themes, again bookending the letter, is reference to the obedience that comes from faith, i.e., the obedience that flows from faith in God. That's right in the very first few verses, is right near the end of the letter as well. And in different language, Paul will talk a lot about that within the letter. That actually the gospel is meant to restore us to obedience to God. And I recently talked through Romans in a different context um, over a bit of a longer period of time, which just struck how many elements of Romans actually come down to we're saved into godly living and saved into obedience for Him. And that does seem to be quite a prominent thing that Paul is saying and certainly I think this theme of unity especially unity of Jew and Gentile is also uh, fair to say a strong sub-theme in the letter it comes up fairly early in the letter um, as we'll see and then becomes the kind of substantial discussion it's the last substantial discussion almost like the letter is worked up to that the end so gospel is an overall theme definite sub-themes of being called into obedience that flows from faith and also unity all of which i think we'll see as we go through it and just a few headlines on reading romans well how do you tackle and read a book of the bible like this well in part with the same foundations with which we should come to any part of the Bible which is asking the right questions and asking two questions one is what was this trying to say in its original context to original hearers we want to start with understanding Paul on his own terms in his time to the people he's writing this is a letter written not to us it might be for us now but it's not written to us so we want to see what was Paul trying to say to the people he was writing to at the time and then the second step of biblical interpretation once we've got the what was the doing at the time what was its purpose is to say what impact should that have on us today and what response should we make notice two things and you might have heard me say this before if you've been in various contexts with me one is it is important to separate those two steps out bad Bible reading often happens because the main question we come with first is how do I respond to this which actually means we don't do the what's this say very well we kind of jump to where we should end up we jump there and miss a, a vital step so separating first what's this saying then how do I respond is really helpful but also notice I talk about the impact and response it's very easy to think the Bible reading should lead to which is basically do's and don'ts impact gives us a slightly broader uh, range of ways that the Bible impacts us because sometimes actually it's not about doing and not doing it's about how we think about the worldview we have or sometimes it's about responding in worship or actually um, being able to tackle fears or worries or it might be I just think impact gives us a helpful broader um, way of thinking about that and we also always want to consider genre. What type of writing are we reading? So many different types of writing in the scriptures. And as we know in daily life, we read different things differently. You read a newspaper article differently to how you read um, a recipe book or how you read, I don't know, a collection of jokes or something. We instinctively do that with most things we read. We want to do the same with the Bible. So, Romans is a letter, it's discourse rather the narrative. That means it's a flow of thoughts. It's a kind of a. Uh, A chain of thinking rather than a story. And therefore, what we're expecting to find is a flow of thoughts, a progression of things, one building on top of the other. And that's absolutely definitely what we find throughout Romans. It really is a building one thing on top of another on top of another. And so to read it well, we want to kind of trace the thread of that, trace the flow of what Paul is saying and what is going on. Which is why I think one of the most important things for understanding a letter like Romans is understanding connectives. Connectives just being the little words that join phrases together. In English we use those a bit. In Greek they use an awful lot, which is really helpful because that means it gives us an indication and kind of some structure to follow what's the flow of thought. How do the different things Paul is saying actually relate to each other? So one of the reasons why it is worth, I think, especially when seeking to look in any depth at a letter like Romans, it's worth using quite a literal translation. Because even if they're a little bit more clunky sometimes, we have to think a little bit more, more hard, actually they tend to keep those connectives in there more clearly something like the ESV is quite good at keeping the connectives clearly something on a slightly um, less literal end like the NLT although I think the NLT is very good actually at translating Paul but still often those little words are omitted and so you can't as clearly see what Paul was trying to do in terms of linking things together so a little tip for, for study particularly something a bit more literal like the ESV is helpful and connectives are words we're all used to. I don't we need to teach you about them, don't worry, it's not going to turn into an English lesson. We instinctively know that different words join phrases in different ways. That some of them are just connecting, a word like and, just connecting two things together. Some of them are contrasting between two things, words like but and rather and however, we know that's contrasting what's on either side. Some are correlating, saying there's a correlation on the one hand, this, on the other hand, that. Some are giving us an alternative. There's this, or oh, there's that. Some are explaining, and these are the really key ones so often for Paul. The word for, particularly, is really key. And, you know, this is true for this, or you see that, or um, that is this, things that are further expanding. And Paul so often says something and then gives further things on it and further things on it and the other one really important for paul is inferential or consequence is what the consequence of this thing is true therefore this other thing is true and just pausing to think what's the relationship between these two statements and how does this little word potentially help me is really good and so an example of that is the kind of central thematic statement of paul uh, of romans in romans 1 where that little word for is so um, vital for meaning what i've just said is explained by what I'm about to say that's what Paul is saying so he says, Romans 1.15 I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also here in Rome why? for I'm not ashamed of the gospel why? for it is the power of God why for in it the righteousness of god is revealed see this thing is true because of this thing because of this thing because of this thing we see how he's kind of um, building up these points and just stopping and thinking oh that's what that little word is doing it helps us understand the further he really wants to preach the gospel because he's utterly unashamed of it and he's utterly unashamed of it because he knows that in the gospel there's power to save and he knows that power is rooted in the fact that in the gospel the righteousness of god is revealed. It's all building one upon another. And so always ask, how does this thing connect to what was just said? How do these relate together? How do what seem like small, insignificant words actually often become the key to really understanding what's being said? And because Romans is this... um, great thread of narrative I do think the best way to look at it is to seek to trace that thread so we'll have a 10 minute coffee break now which means we will be back at 20 past 11 and I will then basically aim to walk us through the journey of Romans in an hour at a fairly big picture level giving us a map so we could go away and read the letter afterwards using that map to get a grip of it and then we should have 10 minutes for Q&A so 10 minute coffee break back ready to start at 20 past let's prepare ourselves to Do Romans in an hour. <laughs> the way to view this is not to freely take everything in, don't panic, don't let yourself be overwhelmed. The way to view it is that we're getting a bird's eye view, we're getting kind of a map which would help us to go away and read Romans afterwards and also the notes are fairly extensive so they'd help you so my encouragement is to enjoy this go with the flow journey through it with me and then find some time in the next few days to read through Romans maybe have the notes alongside you to be able to see a bit more of the detail of how, how it all fits together Romans really falls into four sections and I think each of them can be thought of in terms of the key theme we've talked about of the gospel. The first section of chapters one to four with the gospel as God's powerful present salvation. The chapters 5 to 8, the gospel, God's power for future salvation. Chapters 9 to 11, something like the gospel, God's power for the fulfilment of his promises. And the final set of uh, 12 to 15 and 16, the gospel as God's power for transformed living. So we start with the gospel as the power for present salvation and I've said already that right at the opening of the letter the gospel comes out as the prominent theme. Paul starts by talking about this gospel. I think within the first nine words the um, the theme of the gospel is already introduced and he talks about himself as being an apostle of the gospel of God and it's really interesting just to see how Paul here talks about the gospel. Gospel meaning good news, a word used in the ancient word to kind of proclaim victories that had happened in far off lands a messenger would arrive and announce the gospel that they'd won the victory won the battle it's this gospel of God Promised in the scriptures, I spoke about in the Old Testament, concerning his son. Jesus is at the heart and centre of the gospel. He's descended from David according to human flesh, and so he's pretty human, he's in the line of the Messiah, but also declared to be the son of God in power by the spirit of holiness by his resurrection to the dead. This doesn't mean Jesus became the son of God at the resurrection. He's declared to be the son of God in power, but like the ascension of Jesus to sit at the right hand of And what's so striking here is Paul opens with the gospel of God and he doesn't give us the equation we're used to, of sin plus Jesus equals forgiveness, he gives us a story. He says the story about what God has done in his son. Ultimately the gospel is the good news of the story of what God has done in his son and and that's an interesting thing for us to know, if we tend to think of and present the gospel as an equation, Paul's saying actually at its heart the gospel is a story of God's actions in um, in human history. And it's this gospel which Paul preaches as an apostle and the purpose of his apostleship, he says, is to bring about the obedience of faith, obedience that flows from faith, which I've said is going to be a theme time and time again. It's a real strong sub-theme, as it were, throughout this letter. But it doesn't stop there. It's the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Why is it that God saves? It's to bring people to obedience. Why is to do that? It's for the sake of his name. It's to bring glory to him. Everything God does ultimately is for his own glory. One of the places we see that theme that we've talked about already in relation to this, um, to this doctrine. And we'll see actually the essence of sin is misdirected worship, with Romans 1, which makes sense that therefore when we get to the outworkings of salvation later in the letter, it's about a reorientation of right worship and Paul as we know from you read these verses wants to go to Rome it might be a mutual blessing to each other on his way to go to Spain and he says he feels this, this obligation to preach the gospel not in a sense that um, kind of the debt that he needs to repay but this duty this thing is so good he has to pass it on he has to discharge that duty as it were and therefore he's eager to come and preach the gospel to the guys in Romans and notice he's saying he wants to come and preach the gospel to Christians as well The gospel is just as important for us as Christians as it is for non-Christians. We never kind of mature beyond the gospel. The gospel is always central, always what we need. And this flows into what I said is kind of the key statement of the letter from which everything else flows. Paul says that he wants to preach the gospel because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. This gospel is power. It's not just words. It's not just nice ideas. It's not just an equation. It's power through which God actually does something. Power to save, a power to save anyone. Whether Jew or Greek, whatever the difference is between us, anyone who believes, anyone who takes hold of it, by belief. So how is the gospel the power of God to save? Well, it's because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed by faith or from faith to faith and we've talked a little bit already about righteousness today and how it's the same concept of justification When we talk about the righteousness of God as we do here there are kind of various ideas of what this could mean it could mean the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel in the sense of the rightness of God that God does the right thing that he's a just uh, character who does the right thing everything that he should do it could be about God and his character and that would be a worthwhile thing for Paul to say here because as we saw with Proverbs 17 it's not immediately obvious that God is just and righteous in the gospel. Actually Paul's going to need to explain how can it be just and fair for God to forgive sinners. Could be here that God's character is revealed in the gospel but the righteousness of God here could be God's saving action. Often in the Old Testament you get salvation and God's righteousness kind of placed in parallel. They're used in very similar ways. And actually the expression of God's righteousness is about his action to save. That could be what Paul is saying. Or Paul could be saying the righteousness of God as a gift given to us. In Romans 5, we'll talk about the gift of righteousness. And to be honest, all of them could be the meaning here. All of them may be at play. He may be deliberately kind of evoking various different things. There's perhaps reason to think it's a particular combination of God's saving action and the gift, because of what he's going to kind of go on to say. But this righteousness of God is revealed in the Gospel. God acting to save, God giving a gift to righteousness, and that's why it's the power of God for salvation. And that's what Paul is basically going to unpack and explain. And he says it's the power of God for salvation from faith for faith, and he quotes from Habakkuk, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, to make that point. Which is again going to be a strong theme he's going to bring out. But the way we receive the saving righteousness of God is not through works, but is through faith, through trust in him. And so we could go straight on to explain in what way is this righteousness of God revealed in the gospel, in what way does this saving action take place. But Paul knows that before we can understand being saved, we need to know what we need to be saved from, as we've talked about. And so actually, chapters 1, verse 18 through to 320 are about the thing we need to be safe from. They're kind of, they set in the scene of the darkness into which the gospel can come and shine as the glorious bright light that it is. It's so actually, the first section is about the revelation of God's wrath. Paul's just said that in the gospel, the righteousness is revealed. And now he's saying that the wrath of God is being revealed from, revealed present tense, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress their truth. The revelation of the righteousness of God comes with the gospel that's needed because the wrath of God is currently being revealed against unrighteousness. The wrath of God, as we've talked about, being God's just and fair opposition to and punishment of sin. And in a few sections, Paul kind of explains this and outlines this to us here. In the remainder of chapter one, Paul explains the core idea that God's wrath is being poured out against unrighteousness, and that unrighteousness is a suppression of the truth. That ultimately, unrighteousness is a suppressing of the truth that God is God and that we are not. That unrighteousness all flows from idolatry, where we worship created things rather than worshiping the creator. He says there's enough of who God is that's visible to us in creation that we should know he's there and know he's worthy of worship. So the right human thing to do should be to give God the worship that he's deserving of, the honour and the thanks Paul expresses that. And yet, none of us actually does that. Instead, actually, we give our honour and thanks and our praise and our worship and our devotion to created things, not to the creator. We suppress the truth of who God is. We exchange it for a lie. That's the core of sin. That's what happened in the Garden of Eating at the Fall. This is, in part, talking about that story. But really, it's the story of all of humanity and every human. And the result, Paul says, is that as a present tense expression of the wrath of God, God gives us over to our sin. If you read it through, you'll see it three times. There's this sombre refrain of God gives them over to their sin. The way that God, even in the present tense, pours out his wrath on people who aren't in Christ is to allow them to continue in their sin. Which for us actually is nice, a nice reminder of the folly as a Christian continuing in sin. If God wanted to judge you and punish you right now, he'd let you continue in your sin, which is why it's madness when we choose to do it ourselves. One important side note to mention in our context, you, if you read through it, you'll notice that same-sex sexual activity is one of the examples that Paul uses here. It's just worth pointing out, Paul isn't picking on this as an example because it's inherently worse than other ways of rejecting God's plan or inherently worse than other sinful behaviour. He talks first about general sexual immorality, then about same-sex sexual immorality, then about a whole list of things that aren't even sexual as well. But he highlights same-sex sexual activity as a particularly vivid picture of the idea that sin is a a thing of going against creational intent. There's lots of allusions to Genesis 1 in this chapter about creational intent. And he's saying same-sex relationships are a good, vivid picture of the reality that sin is a suppression of the truth, suppression of God's creational intent. So it's important for us to understand those verses in context. And Paul knows as he outlines all that. Some of his readers, maybe especially Jewish readers, but maybe broad as well, will be thinking, "Yes, aren't those Gentile idolaters awful? Aren't they terrible? The way they worship the created rather than the creature? I'm so glad I'm not like that." And so, in chapter two, he turns and says, "But you who are judging them, you're just the same, and you're just as bad. Actually, you do the same things." He says, "Really, that they too will be judged, and when they're judged according to the things they do, they'll be found to be just as guilty as." everyone else and we the key theme of the first half of chapter two is that God shows no partiality Jew and Gentile those who think they're good and those who think they're bad all will be judged impartially in the same way God shows no partiality and he knows that point though well some Jews are going to object to that because they're going to say but hang on it Paul don't forget we've got circumcision and We've got the law. We're not like those Gentile sinners. We've got these things. They will protect us. Circumcision will protect us. The law will protect us. And Paul says, well, yeah, you've got the law, but it's not having the law that's important. It's keeping the law. Do you actually keep the law? And his assumption and his statement to them is that they don't. And he says circumcision is of value, but circumcision is meant to be like an outward sign of something. Real circumcision, he says, isn't of the flesh. It's of the heart. It's inward it's actually, if your heart isn't circumcised, if the heart of trust and commitment to God isn't there, then physical circumcision means nothing. Jews, some Jews were kind of seeing these as almost like magic talismans that would protect them from the wrath of God. Paul's saying, no, no, that's not how they work at all. It's about keeping the law, and none of us do that perfectly. It's about our hearts being in the right place, not just having external markers of that. And so he's basically got to a point where he's shown that everyone, whether Jew or Gentile, whether we think we're good or bad, whatever external uh, stuff we might have, actually all of us are guilty. All of us fall under the wrath of God. And so the last bit of this section is basically a long string of Old Testament texts that Paul is piecing together to really, really hammer home the point that all of us are unrighteous, all of us are deserving of the judgment of God, all of us are trapped under sin. And just as a kind of final kick when we're feeling down, Paul, as the last thing he says in the little section, points out that also, by the way, the law can't save you. You might think that actually the law could be the way out of this, but it's actually the law just makes things worse. It just reveals sin, provokes sin even. We're trapped under sin, deserving the wrath of God, and even God's own law can't rescue us. Romans 1 through to 3.20 are basically saying we have a huge problem, that we are guilty before God, all deserving of his wrath, and even God's own law can't get us out of that situation. He makes it as dark and bleak as he can, as it were, in order that when he now comes to talk about the revelation of the righteousness of God in the gospel, that light can shine gloriously bright. Which is what he does. He comes to the solution that is offered to us. Chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Summarising everything he's just said, and are justified, are declared righteous, are placed in a right legal standing, we've talked about, by his grace as a gift. It's all given because of the goodness of a giver, it's not earned, it's not a wage you earn, it's a gift given from the giver. Salvation coming as a gift, and it's that gift of God's legal declaration, you are justified. You're in a right legal standing. You've done everything you should have done, nothing you should have not, done, not have done. And of course, any person who knows Proverbs well should at that point be going, hang on a minute, hang on a minute, how can God do that? You don't justify the wicked, you justify the righteous. But as we've already said, Jesus comes as the middle term. He does this uh, justified by his grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And God put forward as a propitiation by his blood um, <laughs> Because of Jesus, he's the missing term there. He's the one who allows redemption. Redemption is rescue at a cost, paying a price to rescue and redeem. You redeem a slave by paying the price to rescue them out of that slavery. The complex term here, that even every time I say it, I'm not sure I can pronounce it rightly, but propitiation is my attempt to say it. A complex debated term, it can mean mercy seat. It's used to talk of the mercy seat, which was the lid of the um, ark in the um, tabernacle in the Old Testament where God dwelt with his people. It can also mean expiation, which is uh, kind of like acting like a disinfectant, removing guilt. Or it can mean propitiation, which isn't just about wiping away guilt, but actually uh, appeasing wrath, of taking punishment in a sense. And given all the talk of God's wrath in the chapters just before, I think that's the best reading of it here, or in a sense it encompasses all these meanings, but including and up to that. Jesus comes as this (coughs) sacrifice of atonement, who absorbs, as it were, the wrath of God for us, who experiences that punishment. The wrath of God was satisfied, as the psalm says, as um, it was poured out on Jesus. But also, Jesus is the mercy seat because the mercy seat was the place the sacrificial blood was shed to make atonement for, to pay the price for sins. That imagery is also there very much at play. And so, so importantly, God doesn't justify sinners by overlooking sin. It's not that he says, oh, actually, sin isn't such a big deal over, or after all. Let's just kind of ignore it. Let's just brush it over the carpet, pretend that didn't happen. No, actually, the full force of his um, wrath and just anger against sin is pulled out. But it's pulled out on Jesus, not pulled out on those in him. Therefore, Paul says, God can be just and the justifier of the ungodly or of the unjust. Having talked about the revelation of the righteousness of God in the gospel, he comes to talk or focus more on the kind of second half of that thematic statement, the faith bit. It's the revelation of the righteousness of God from faith, for faith. Which really is what he's doing in the rest of chapter 3 into chapter 4. He says, because all of this is a gift of God received by faith, not based on works. There's no grounds for boasting. There's no grounds in which for us to boast in our position and be proud of our position before God because there's nothing in us anyway. It's all God's doing. We can boast only in him. And chapter four is particularly looking at the example of Abraham because Abraham is an example, Jewish believers particularly might have brought up saying, well, here's a guy who was really good and he was justified because of his goodness because there were lots of traditions about Abraham in that way. There were kind of traditions saying that Abraham was um, called by God because he'd been rejecting idol worship and destroying idols. Which isn't in the Old Testament, basing some other Jewish texts from shortly before the time of Jesus. So they'd be saying, well, but Abraham shows that actually our good works can get justification. Paul goes back to Genesis and goes, no, 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 Abraham was justified by faith. He trusted God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, it says in Genesis 15. It's all by faith, the point Paul is trying to make. We receive this not through our works, but all because of what God has done. And so in the Gospel, there is God's powerful present salvation, present tense experience of salvation based on the work of Christ received through faith. That's the first four chapters, the first kind of quarter, and the next kind of section, chapters five to eight, kind of raises the question: Well, that's great and wonderful for now. That right now we're justified, but. We're still going to have a day when we stand before God on Judgment Day. There's still a, a kind of a future time when a verdict will be passed. How can we be certain, having been justified now, will still be justified then? How can we be certain that we're going to be secure and we're going to be saved on that day? And I think that is the kind of thread holding together chapters 5 to 8. Not explicitly stated, but there's some noticeable shifts happening in these chapters. They start and end with talk about future salvation. So again, there's this bookending thing, which often indicates a theme, talk of future salvation, talk of glory and being with God at that point. There's also just a really clear shifting focus of kind of themes. Things like the word faith is really, really prominent. Even righteousness, really, really prominent in um, those earlier chapters, and now other words uh, like grace and like hope become much more prominent in these chapters. There's just a real clear shift in um, focus of what's going on. And what Paul said is, how can you be certain now that you'll still be justified then? He said it's because of the comprehensive nature of salvation, understanding what actually happens in salvation, and it's because of what Christian life now looks like. Let's unpack that a little bit. In chapter 5, he talks about what salvation really is, what happens in salvation, and the nature of it, how that gives us confidence for the future. Firstly, he flows from our past justification, that we've been justified, to our present position that we now have peace with God, we're standing in grace and our future hope we're going to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. he's showing us our confidence of the future comes from the past and the present. in verses six to eleven he explains that because he <coughs> argues from the greater to the lesser. which is saying, if this great thing has happened, then this comparatively smaller thing will easily happen. if God's justified us by christ's blood. Then of course he will save us on judgment day. He say, if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of Christ, think how difficult it is to be, re- to be reconciled when you're an enemy. He says, now that we're reconciled, of course we'll be saved by His life. If this huge thing has already been done, then this comparatively small thing will happen. We were enemies, and yet God reconciled us to Himself. Now that we're no longer enemies, now that we're friends, now that we're adopted as His children, of course He'll save us by His life at that point. What's happened, Paul is saying, guarantees what's going to happen. In the second half of chapter 5, he introduces another concept of what salvation is, which shows us the security we have in it and the guarantee of future salvation. It's where Paul talks about us being in Christ. We start in Adam, we move to being in Christ. The concept is that God sees everyone as being in one of these two groups. You're either in Christ or you're in Adam. And both group has a figurehead, Christ and Adam, and the actions of the figurehead affect the people in the group. The actions of the one affect the many. Always reminds me of school. Did this happen to you where someone would do something wrong and no one would own up to it? So everyone would get in trouble. Everyone would lose break time, whatever it might be. The actions of the one are affecting the many. But then someone might hype up and admit that they did it. Whether it was them or not, didn't matter. But someone's kind of taking the blame and everyone gets let off, let out to break or whatever. And that one person takes the punishment. The actions of the one are affecting the many. That's what Paul is saying happens here. We start in Adam because we're descended from Adam and his actions, his rebellion against God, mean death and condemnation for all of us. We receive that from Adam, he says. But actually what happens in salvation is we're moved out of Adam and we're placed into Christ. So no longer do we receive the impacts of Adam's actions, we receive the impacts of Christ's actions, which are life and our justification. So by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners in Adam. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous in Christ. And what Paul's trying to communicate is, what's happened to you is not just a little kind of sprinkling, not just a little kind of wipe down, but you've been moved out of Adam and placed into Christ. And when God looks at you, he's not seeing Adam's sin and your sin, he's seeing Christ and Christ's perfection. And the point is, you don't hop in and out of Adam. It's not that you have a good day and you're in Christ, but then you're gonna have a bad day and you're back in Adam, but you do something good so you're back in Christ, but then it's a bad day so you're back in Adam. That's not how it works. You're in Christ, you're in him forever, therefore you are safe and secure. And because you're in Christ, Paul is saying, you can know that you're gonna be justified on the final day. Salvation is so comprehensive, as it were, that actually it gives us that security. But he knows that he says that if, secu- if salvation is so secure, we can be certain about our future salvation on the final day. Some people might think, well, then how we live now just doesn't matter at all. And so he moves on to chapter 6 to talk about the Christian's relationship to sin. Because actually, if we know we're going to be justified then, let's just have a good time now, right? Let's just do whatever we want. Why not just continue in sin? Or as Paul puts it, actually, why not continue in sin that grace may abound? Because he just said that where there was more sin, there was more grace you could say, well, grace is a good thing. So if we sin, well, there's more grace, that's an even better thing. But Paul's response is, by no means. The Christian relationship to sin isn't to say, oh, well, let's just continue in it because we know we're secure. And chapter 6 kind of rises into two halves of ways he explains that to us. One reason he says, by no means, should we just continue in sin is because we've been united with Christ, we're in Christ, we've just seen. And that means that when we died, we died when he died, we died with him. And when we died with him, we died to sin. Our slavery to sin was broken because we died to it and we died with him. Sin no longer has power over us. Therefore, we must consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. In the second half, he explains a similar point, but different analogy. He uses the slavery analogy. A slave is only a slave but their master. As long as they're both alive, actually, when death takes place, that slavery is broken. He says, we died to our old slave master of sin, separated from the power and control of sin. But now we're enslaved to God and to righteousness. And she's interesting, there's no free people. You're either enslaved to sin or to God and to righteousness. We're freed from slavery to sin, where we're bound to do its bidding, kind of controlled by it. And now we're slaves to God and to righteousness. We are free to not sin. And Paul says this is true because we're in Christ. And now we have to kind of choose to live that out. He says you've got to reckon yourself to be, consider yourself to be dead to sin. It won't always feel like it. Temptation will come and it will feel like we can't resist the urge to sin. But Paul says, but we can because we're no longer slaves to sin. And if it doesn't feel like that's true, we have to reckon it to be true. It's like when you turn up in a new country, you land on the plane, the time is different. Everything in you might feel like it's a totally different time of day. But you have to reset your watch to the actual time of day. And the way you begin to live in the truth of what the time actually is, even if it doesn't feel like it is, is you reckon it to be true and you act as if it's true. And as you act as if it's true the time is what your watch is telling you, your body begins to catch up and you begin to believe and feel that is true. It is true that we are no longer enslaved to sin, even if we don't feel that way. And as we reckon that to be true, we live as if that is true, we begin to step into that reality. And so a Christian's relationship to sin is that we know we're free from the power of sin. We're free to live God's way. And this, I think, is part, again, of why Paul is saying we can have confidence about the, end, the end, uh, end judgment. Because life as a Christian should be increasing life of holiness because we're freed from the slavery of sin remember Paul is time and time again building step upon step upon step and he kind of says one thing that makes me realise he needs to say something else so in Miller chapter 6 he says sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under the law but under grace which he knows raises another question of well what about the law if we're not under the law anymore we're now under grace why have we been rescued from the law was the law bad or was the law a problem and so chapter 7 comes to deal with that question that um, confusion that might be raised was the law bad What's the law God gave a sinful thing, a bad thing? And what role does it actually have now in the life of a Christian? He lays out the first, the actual key point of this chapter, the first six verses. Again, it's about us being united with Christ and dying with Christ. Law is only applicable to living people. Generally speaking, there is some crazy story about some revolutionaries in the Civil War being dug up, dead, being dug up, tried, hundred, and quartered. Oh, um, <laughs> Eccentric forebears did that. But generally speaking, law is only applied to living people. And Paul uses the illustration of marriage that marriage commitment under marriage law exists until one of the spouses dies, at which point actually that marriage commitment is broken. Law only applies to living people. He said, Well, we died with Christ, therefore we died to the law. The law actually no longer has authority over us, no longer has power over us, and we raised the life to live a different way, not by the law. That's actually the way of the spirit in newness of life. And that's actually the key point he's making here. But Paul, being a good teacher, knows that's going to raise some questions because that kind of makes it sound like the law was a bad thing. That this thing that in the Old Testament is this wonderful gift God gave to the people of Israel actually was a bad thing we needed rescuing from. And he's asking, well, is the law bad? And that's what he does in the rest of the chapter. Is the law sin, he says? And Paul says, no, certainly not. The law wasn't the problem. But sin was. Because sin dwelt in us, it took the law and it misused the law. It used it to lead us into and provoke us into sin. Sin was a problem, not the law. The law is good and holy and righteous, he says. But mixed with sin, sin would misuse it. He kind of makes that point throughout this chapter. And you might know that what he does in this chapter is he starts to talk in the first person, i.e. using the word I, I this, I that. And the question gets raised, right Leo, well, who's doing the talking? Who's actually this, I figure, this person talking? Is this Paul talking now as a Christian, as it were? Or is it Paul talking as if he was, when he was, when he wasn't a Christian, before he became a Christian? Or is this a Jewish person living under the law? Or some people think, actually, this is a person talking between regeneration, remember new birth, God working a heart, and justification, like there's going to some little gap in that order of salvation. And debate rages over who actually is talking. And lots of people read Paul here and think, well, this is clearly Paul the Christian talking, because we read it and we think, I can just so relate. He says things like, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I did not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's in anguish over his sense of inability to live God's way. Lots of us read that and think, yeah, there are times or areas of life which I can relate. We easily think, well, this is Paul the Christian talking. But then actually, when you look at other things Paul is saying, I think you get some problems. If Paul the Christian is talking in chapter 7, then he's almost directly contradicting what he said in chapter 6, and also what he goes on to say in chapter 8. Um, verse 23 of chapter 7 talks about Paul being or the speaker being captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members remember chapter 6 it said we've been crucified with Christ and actually the body of sin has been brought to nothing so we were once slaves to sin we were once captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members but we're no longer how can Paul say that in chapter 6 if he's saying this about Christians in chapter 7 or he says in verse 14 of chapter 7 we know the law is spiritual but I am of the flesh sold under sin but in verse 9 of chapter 9, he'll say of Christians, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Direct contradiction. It's almost impossible, unless you think Paul is a stupid, incoherent thinker, which no one reads history has thought quite in that way. It's impossible to think that Paul is talking as a Christian in Romans 7, if you then want to take seriously Romans 6 and Romans 8. There's also the hint in the fact that he says this thing of, wretched man that I am I, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, almost in brackets, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who will deliver me? Jesus. The implication is this isn't actually someone saved by Jesus. And so I think what's going on here is this is Paul thinking of what life, maybe was like for him pre-conversion. What life is like for someone who knows the Old Testament law and loves the Old Testament law, the kind of things we hear expressed in the Psalms in the Old Testament but actually who hasn't been saved by Christ, who hasn't experienced the power of Christ, the freedom from sin. So it is a pre-conversion experience in that way. And Paul is using it to illustrate this idea that the law wasn't the problem. Sin dwelling in us was the problem. And so two really important things to say on this. One is, this is actually really important to get right. Because if we think this is what the Christian life is meant to be like, it's very easy to have a very defeatist attitude of, yeah, of course, actually, I feel enmeshed and trapped in patterns of sin because that's normal Christian life. And we end up in the misery that sin brings up, and We just think that's just what life is like. And we miss out, actually, on God saying that we're free from the power of sin. We're now to live by the Spirit, as we say in chapter 8. I think it's really important we recognize it isn't meant to be normal Christian experience. doesn't mean Christian experience might not sometimes feel like that. But actually, it's not a position which we are destined to be, in, to be trapped in. And actually, we get out of that position by taking a hold of Romans 6 and Romans 8. That's one, I think, really important reason why it is an important question to ask. But the other thing I always want to, want, want to say at this point is we can get very tied up in Romans 7 about the identity of the I, which is absolutely not Paul's point. Paul's point is about the law, that the law is good and righteous and holy. And it's just important not to allow this understandable interpretive questions to overlook or overpower what Paul is actually trying to say, which is the law is good and holy. God didn't get it wrong with the law, but sin was misusing the law. in some ways, chapters six and seven are a little bit of a a, a digression. Paul, as I said, kind of um, picking up on potential questions, objections being raised. And so he comes back now, actually, to talk about what does the life we live now as Christians look like As we're waiting for future salvation, that guarantees future salvation. And in chapter 8, he comes to life in the Spirit. We're no longer under the law. We now live life in the Spirit. And what does that look like? What should normal Christian life look like between now and Judgment Day? It isn't abandoning ourselves to sin. It isn't kind of striving to keep the law. It's the life in the Spirit. Romans 8 is meant to be normal Christian life. It's a life of total freedom from condemnation. That wonderful statement in the start of chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And he's emphatic, there's not one bit of condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He points backwards in Christ Jesus, that's in chapter 5. He also points forwards, he says the Holy Spirit has applied to us the benefits and the outworkings of Christ's death. And the purpose of all this, he says in verse 4 onwards, is that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. God saved us, he's freed us from condemnation, so that we can now live his way. It's that theme of the obedience that flows from faith. Paul really cares about how we live having been saved, having experienced salvation. And actually now, by setting our minds on the things of the Spirit, on God's ways, not the things of the flesh and sin's ways. We're empowered to live God's way, to fulfil the righteous requirement of the law. That's what happens when we're led by the Spirit. Not in that wretched position of chapter 7, but in the wonderful position of fulfilling God's law. And another thing he tells us about being filled by the Spirit, chapter 8, verse 14 onwards, is that we get adopted as God's child. As we talked about, the kind of very pinnacle of salvation. And it's like Paul is working up with a crescendo of the blessings of salvation and life in the Spirit. That we become God's children, those with freedom from fear, those with no wonderful intimacy with God, who are heirs and co-heirs with God and with Christ. And also those who experience, as we said, the blessing of suffering. And I think verses 18 through to the end of chapter uh, 8 are basically trying to explain to us, if children of God inevitably suffer, how do we handle that? How do we know and have confidence that we are still always perfectly loved by God in the midst of that? And I think he looks future, present, and past that. He looks future. He says, we know even we suffer now as the children of God, we know that we're loved and we're secure with God because we know that there's something better coming. We know there's a new creation coming. We know that what we're experiencing now will not compare to the future glory that's going to be revealed. He says, in suffering, one of the things we do is we lift our head and we look beyond our circumstances. We look to the fact that even though this feels like all-consuming now in the grand scheme of things, it's going to seem light and momentary. It's not going to compare to the glory that's coming. There's a future thing. There's also a present thing. He says, verses 26 and 27, the Spirit prays for us when we're suffering we don't know what to pray. The Spirit himself intercedes for us. His groaning is too deep for words. And some people think this is the gift of tongues, the gift of languages. I'm not convinced that's the case. For one, he says these isn't words. And the gift of languages tends to be words. And this is the Spirit praying, not us. He's saying that when you are suffering so much you don't even know what to say, God's Spirit Himself is praying to God the Father on your behalf. Isn't that an encouragement? When you're suffering and you can't bring yourself to pray, you are being prayed for by the very Spirit of God. Because of that, you can know that even if you're a suffering child of God, you're still a loved child of God. And He said we can look to the past. We can know that God always works all things for the good of those who love Him. That wonderful, famous verse we tend to forget the kind of how we can know that is because of what God has done. This is where that chain of salvation comes in, all those different things God has done. Because God has foreknown us and predestined us and called us and justified us and glorified us, because he's done all of that, we can be confident that he works all things for good. And there's another greater to the letter. This amazing thing has been done by God. Of course, therefore, he's going to do this comparatively small thing. When we're suffering, we look at all that God has done for us in salvation and it reassures us and reminds us I am loved by God unquestionably, and my circumstances don't change that and can't challenge that. So chapter 8 ends with that very famous and wonderful declaration of the utter certainty of God's love for us, of our security in Him, and of His doing good for us. So these chapters are all about how can we be certain we'll still be justified on Judgment Day. It's because of the nature of salvation. It's so comprehensive and it's irreversible. And because of Christian life right now, we're not enslaved to the spirit. We're not under the law. We are not enslaved to the law. We're not under the sin. We're not under the law. We are now empowered by the spirit to live God's way and to experience being a child of God. Salvation now gives us the confidence that the gospel is also God's power for future salvation. Let's take a, a three-minute pause, talking to a table, what has surprised you, challenged you, confused you, excited you? Let's take a moment to decompress before we do the second two parts. Good morning. I wish they easier, but these might be the hardest chapters in Romans, 9 to 11, some people would say. We come now to the Gospel as God's power for fulfilment of his promises. Paul, he just talked about life and the Spirit, and the obvious thing to do now, in a sense, having talked kind of quite broadly and conceptually about that would be to go into much more detail of what's that look like day by day, putting that to kind of practice, as it were. And he's going to get to that. Chapters 12 to 16 are going to be really kind of applied stuff of what does life in the spirit look like. But first, actually, there's something else he wants to talk about and he wants to address and engage with. There's kind of a lingering question in his mind, could be in the mind of his readers as well, he wants to tackle. He opens chapter 9, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Something's wrong. And Paul is deeply, deeply moved by this. Anguished, even. And why is it? He said it's because of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. It's because of his fellow Israelites, fellow Jewish people. You see, so the problem that Paul is so aware of, and the only church he'd been very aware of, was Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, coming primarily and firstly to the Jewish people. And yet very many of Paul's Jewish contemporaries had not accepted Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. And actually the makeup of the early church was more Gentile than it was Jewish. And so there's this wrestle of actually, why have the Jewish people not received the Messiah promised to them and sent to them? And it raises really big questions. Mm -hmm. It raises the question of, well, is God not faithful to his promises? He's made his promises in the Old Testament. Is he not faithful to them? Or maybe God wants to be faithful, but he's just not able to be. Actually, there's this specific problem, but it raises big questions, questions which are relevant to every age and generation, even if we might not feel as acutely aware of the problem that Paul is talking about. Really, he's saying this is a situation that raises some serious questions about who God is, and so he's wrestling with it. And so chapters 9 to 11 become about the gospel as God's power to fulfil his promises as made in the Old Testament. Why the Jewish people not accepted Jesus as the Messiah? Well Paul gives, as I've said already, two answers that he places in parallel, which to us are very hard to reconcile, but which he doesn't try to reconcile, he just says they're both true. On the one hand, people haven't responded to Jesus because of God's choice. Because of election we've talked about, it's God's doing it's what he's chosen to do. But on the other hand, Paul says it's also because of people's individual choice, because of their unbelief and their choice not to respond to Jesus. Chapter nine focuses on the first half, it focuses on God's election. He says it's not as if the word of God has failed, because it actually goes back to the Old Testament, he goes back to the promises and he shows actually these promises were never made to all the biological descendants of Abraham. They were always still the true children of promise. It's always being about God's choice, not about biological descent. That's where he uses the example we talked about of Jacob and Esau. Not both of them, actually, were going to be the line through which these promises went. It was the one to whom the promise was made. He talks about Isaac. Isaac, the son of Abraham, actually was Abraham's secondborn. He wouldn't normally be the one who inherits, but he's the child of promise, a result, literally, of God's promise against the odds. It's through his line, not through the line of Ishmael, the child of the flesh, who came through human effort and was the firstborn that things go, Paul says it's always been in the way, actually it's not about biological descent, it's about the promise of God. And so actually he's saying there's actually no tension really, well, no strong tension between what God is doing now and what God has already done. And this is where, as I said, he notices the potential objections and our understandable uh, emotional reactions to this um, reality of and this doctrine of election. Is it really right? Is it really fair if God is the one who fight, who hardens hearts? How can he then still find fault? And what's interesting, I think Paul could, as we've tried to talk about a bit, could give some logical answers. But that's not his first response. Paul's first response actually isn't to try and explain the situation. Actually, it's slightly to put us all in our places as to whether there's even questions we can ask. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is moulded? Say to its moulder, why have you made me like this? He's saying God is God, he's sovereign and we're not, and sometimes we just need to accept that. And I always feel challenged by that, and I always think actually, if we find that quite a hard thing to stomach, then for it's a challenge we need. <laughs> actually, recognizing God is God, and there's some things I don't understand, and I have to let Him be God, and I have to realize and accept that I'm not. If that's very difficult for us to stomach, that's why we need Paul to say strong words to us like that. But then he does also mention, as I said earlier, he gives this kind of what if thing. What if actually God is enduring these vessels prepared for destruction? In order basically to show his goodness and glory, Paul says potentially the answer actually of God's glory and his seeking his glory is what explains this. but the key point of chapter nine is one of the reasons why many of the Jewish people of his day haven't responded to Jesus is a result of god's choice it's always been based on God's choice, not all the people of ethnic as well. but then he comes and introduces the second parallel theme placing it alongside kind of last few verses of chapter nine into chapter ten of People's unbelief. People haven't trusted Jesus because they've chosen not to, because they've sought to establish righteousness through works, actually, not through faith receiving it as a gift of grace. They've tried to be saved by the law rather than trying to be saved by Jesus. And he says that's all despite the fact that the gospel has gone out. He's actually the gospel has been proclaimed, it has been preached, they have heard. It's not that people haven't heard so they haven't to respond. He says the gospel has gone out. So actually the problem isn't in the kind of communication of the gospel, the problem must be in people's failure to choose to respond to it, to choose to believe. He's placing individual choice alongside God's choice. Maybe attention, but when we have to hold it. So in chapter 11 he gets this big question of, well, does this basically mean that God has rejected his people? But again, he gives this really strong answer by, by no means. And he himself is proof of that. He's a Jew who's responded to Jesus. Clearly, God hasn't rejected his Old Testament people because some of them are responding. And actually, he realises that just as God always has done, he's saving a remnant, a subset of the larger group. Just as in the time of Elijah, almost everyone's worshipping this foreign god, Baal, but God reassures Elijah, no, no, I've kept back 6,000 people who are still faithfully following me, following the living God. It's not the case that God's rejected his people. And actually, God's doing something through this. He says there's some mysterious plan and work of God in this, that actually Gentiles coming to salvation is meant to provoke people, Jewish people, to jealousy and to wanting something of what the Gentiles are experiencing, to coming to Christ in that way. That actually, even though it looks like Jews aren't coming to salvation, actually, in the grand scheme of God's plan, he's doing something to ensure that salvation does come to the Jewish people in the end. And therefore he says to the Gentiles in the church, don't be arrogant against the Jewish believers in the church. God's not rejected them and accepted you. He's working through you to bless them. And you've been brought into what was originally theirs. We've talked about these divisions in the church, and part of how he's saying, no, there needs to be unity. And part of that is humility from Gentile believers. And he concludes it at the end of the chapter by, talking about this mystery, that this partial hardening has come on Israel but that's until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And then he says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Kind of a confusing and surprising statement, given the whole problem he's talking about is a load of the Israelites seem to not be being saved and not responding to it.
1: We have to ask, well, what's
0: he talking about? All Israel being saved could mean, okay, well, the Christian church is the new Israel, and in that sense, all Israel will be saved. That could make sense. In Galatians, he definitely talks about the church as the new Israel. But all the way through these chapters, Israel has been talking about the Ethnic people, God's Old Testament people, not the church. It would be really weird to suddenly like, put a different meaning yeah. onto the word here. It could mean, or some people think it could mean, that all Jewish people would out to be saved. Some people think this is biblical evidence that you can be saved by trusting in Jesus, or you can be saved by trusting in the promises of the Jewish people. The problem with that is it contradicts with Becky other statement of that kind of theme in the Bible, including Paul. There's no other biblical evidence that there's any salvation outside of Jesus. And so more likely, actually, is when Paul says all Israel are here, what he means is a large number of Israelites, And that phrase is used in that way in the Old Testament and elsewhere. And possibly the indication is that actually as the return of Jesus approaches, there will be a mass turning of people from Jewish backgrounds to trust in Jesus. This wonderful bringing in of many people from Jewish backgrounds to trust in Jesus. And in that way, as a result of the salvation of the Gentile people, all Israel will be saved. It's a complex thing, but that's kind of my best step at what Paul seems to be saying God is doing. And even Paul himself recognises this is complex. It's hard to work out exactly what God is doing. But what's so fascinating is he ends this little section not by saying he's really frustrated or annoyed that he can't work it out or kind of making some complaints or accusations against God. He ends it by worshipping. Realising the limitations of his knowledge leads him to worship. All the depths of the riches... And the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counsellor, or who has given to him a gift that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. It's a challenge, I think, actually, especially for modern Westerners we're used to knowing everything. We can pick up our phones, know most things in an instant. We think we've kind of solved the world post-enlightenment. Paul says, we just don't know, and therefore we worship. And then finally, in chapters 12 to 15, he does come to what did it really look like rubber hits the road to live this life or this direction. <clears throat> the gospel is God's power for transformed living. He's kind of taught loads of truth, and now it's here's the response, the application, the impacts of that. With a real turning point, with a connective word of therefore I appeal to you, therefore, so like everything I've said, now what we do, it's we, by the mercies of God, present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In chapter one, sin was misdirected worship, worshiping the creature, not the created. Now actually, salvation restores us to right and to correct worship. He says we do this by not being conformed to the world, so we're not kind of uh, pushed into the mould of and the pattern of and the ways of a world which we know from Romans 3 is sold under sin, but instead by the transforming of being transformed by the renewing of our mind. In Romans 1, our thinking was darkened and made futile through our own worship (coughs) and sin. In Romans 12, our thinking, our mind becomes renewed, uh, transformed through the renewal of our mind. Salvation is the undoing of the problem of sin. And these chapters give kind of the practical outworking of that. He talks first in the middle of chapter 12 about our gifts in our church and thinking soberly of ourselves and our gifts, recognising... We need each other as a body has its many parts needing each other, but also recognising we should take hold of the gifts God has given us and use them for the benefit and blessing of other people. He talks in verse 9 onwards about genuine love. It's kind of um, Often it's uh, translated, let love be genuine, but there's no verb there actually. There's more like a heading, genuine love, and then he explains what that is. And this quickfire list of quickfire instructions imperative of what genuine love really looks like. That's the outworking of a renewed mind living out this salvation he talks in the first half chapter 13 about our submission to authorities to governing authorities, to ruling authorities that the default position of a Christian is to submit to governing authorities, recognise they've been put in place by God and recognising they are put there to enact some of his justice and I think the interesting point there is my experience is from 13 we spend more time explaining it away than we do trying to listen to it and realise what to, what to do And so I think Paul would agree that there are caveats to be made about when actually (coughs) governing authorities are asking us to reject Jesus or go against his ways, or when governing authorities are not living up to the duties that Paul gives them there. I think he would agree with that, but I think we often focus on all the caveats and forget that Paul is very strong on the default position for a Christian is to be in uh, submission and obedience to governing authorities, and we really need to hear the challenge. Now Paul says this Christian living all gets summarised actually in the command to love one another. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Everything he says gets summarised in that and so loving is fulfilling the law. Hence all the stuff about genuine love in that. These are kind of, again, quite general, but still where it hits the road things. And he finishes off by going right into the situation in Rome, as it were, addressing the divisions in Rome, showing how all these principles get applied there. Because it seems there's divisions in Rome between two groups who Paul calls the weak and the strong. They have different ideas on things like um, holy days, like the Sabbath and festivals, things like food, whether you can eat meat or not, potentially over drink as well, whether you can drink alcohol. And it seems what's going going on is they've got different views on how you honour God. Some people think the best way to honour and love and worship God is to live in this way. Some people think the other way. And what's so striking is Paul very clearly sides with the strong, as he puts it. He thinks it's fine to eat meat, fine to drink alcohol, you don't need to make a special thing of certain days. But he doesn't go, the weak are wrong, so let's correct them. He says, actually, let's bear with each other. Let's not look down on each other. Let's not judge each other. He says, actually, on things which are disputable and not of central significance to Christian doctrine and to the Gospel, it's better, actually, for us to seek unity even in our disagreements, than it is for us to bat each other in the head and try and all get on the same page or judge each other. And that's what he's encouraging them to do. And what's really important to think about is that's radically different to what he does in Galatians. Galatians' the situation is quite similar. There's debates over what you eat, debates over practices uh, like circumcision and holy days as well. And there, he doesn't say you can agree to disagree. He says, you're wrong. This is not the gospel. You need to sort it out. The difference seems to be, in Galatians, the people there were thinking, this is about justification. They were saying, Jesus plus being Jewish, Jesus plus keeping the food laws, being circumcised, keeping the Sabbath, is what gets you and keeps you in the people of God. And Paul goes, no, no, Jesus is what gets you and keeps you in the people of God. But in Romans, they can't be saying that, because Paul responds totally differently. In Romans, it's no. we're saved by grace, through faith, Jesus alone, and we think the best way we can express our love to Jesus is by eating this certain way or keeping these days. And Paul's like, that's a disputable matter. That's okay, you can agree or disagree there because the gospel is the same and is core. Cool. And I think this is really interesting as well. I wonder, i talked this recently and I said, I wonder if a lot of things that have divided churches actually are disputable matters, not gospel-central matters. And that's quite challenging, actually. If Paul says the priority should be unity, unsurprisingly, given stuff Jesus says and Jesus prayed, in John 17 particularly... Not actually getting everything dotted and crossed right. I found it really quite challenging, actually, of just how prominent Paul, or how much Paul cares about unity, and how actually he says we should be able to live with some difference in unity. That doesn't mean we can disagree over everything. There are undisputable matters, and Paul is explicit on that in lots of his letters, but there are some that are disputable, and a unity should be what we're seeking in that. And finally, well done with a. Uh, oh, we're just going to make it in time. He returns to the beginning. He tells us again about his desire to go to Rome to preach the gospel. Um, It talks about his fact he's going to go to Jerusalem to take the money he's been collecting for the Christians there and then come to them. And Romans 16, to us, feels tagged on. To us, feels long and boring. It's a long list of names. We think, is this really significant? But actually, I think it's a wonderful insight into what church should be. You've got young and old people, you've got men and women, you've got couples and singles, you've got Jewish people, Gentile people, slaves and free. There's a wonderful example here of unity in action. And an you a diverse group of people, which you wouldn't really get in the ancient world, but united in Christ. And a group of people who are all playing their part in God's mission. They're fellow workers, they host helps churches, they've worked hard for Paul, they're fellow prisoners, they're workers in the Lord. Everyone has a part to play in this mission that Paul is trying to talk about and proclaim in this gospel that he's talking about. There's actually kind of an example and an encouragement to us of what church should be like and what Christian life should be like, even in what seems to be just a list of names at the end of a letter. And Paul ends again in worship. And Paul ends where he started. He's worshipping God for the gospel. He's talking about the obedience that flows from faith, so central for Paul here. All he says that ultimately God might be glorified. This whole letter is focused around the fact that Paul wants God to be glorified. Worship is the right response to the realities and the experience of salvation. 12.29. Well, everyone, you've done incredibly well with all of stuff. I didn't keep time well, so apologies. We probably won't do QA, but I'll hang around. If you've got burning questions, do feel free to come and ask. I'll be really happy to do my best to talk through them.